As Pastor Peter mentioned, my name is Josh. I am uh, part of the leadership team here at the Springs. So we have a lot going on today, right? A lot going on. There's like storms and babies and communion. And uh, we don't necessarily want to celebrate storms too much. We're glad everybody's safe. But um, we do want to take time to celebrate things like communion and babies together. So it's not a bad thing. This is our family. We want to celebrate that and celebrate it together. Uh, Now, when all that's going on, we do want to, in turn, as a result of doing all that, use our time as wisely as possible in our word. Uh, So we're going to switch things up a little bit in in the order that we do things. I'm going to go ahead and pray right now to get started, and then we're going to just jump right in, okay? We're just going to jump right in, and we're going to go for uh, as long as it takes us to get through our our portion of text today, all right? Uh, So if you would bow your heads, Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you that you provide us with a spiritual family. God, you give us the ability uh, to be knit together with others by your name and by your love in union with you. Father, I ask that you would uh, bless this time together as a spiritual family as we embark to um, receive from your word. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So this week we are still in our series in Colossians, All and Nothing. It is a, a look into the book of Colossians where we're going to kind of see all of who Jesus is and see there's nothing we can add to that. Now, last week, Pastor Peter uh, gave us some truths and mistruths that we find in the beginning of chapter two. What we're going to do is we're going to take chapter two, and we're going to kind of, or the beginning of chapter two, we're going to bring it into the end of chapter two, and we're going to search out uh, what's going on at the end of chapter two here. Now, this is fun because this is going to be the meat kind of the entire book. If you guys have been tracking along with us the past few weeks, you see that there is a theme to the book of Colossians. And the theme is Paul arguing against this philosophy or heresy that had infiltrated the church in Colossae to say they needed something in addition to Jesus to find purpose, salvation, value. And I believe how he does that is he, he, he displays how God takes the believer and puts him in a new environment in him, in Jesus, and then begins to wipe away everything that brought him value or her value before. Okay. Now, this is a, a kind of a weird concept, so let me, let me give you an example of what the before environment is like. All right. So in high school, I played football. And I got to be honest about this, because this morning I actually saw a guy that I played football with in school come in. So I got to be really honest and say that I was not good at football. All right. They completely changed my story this morning. I had to, I had to just, you know, just pivot. All right. Well, I was not good at football. Okay. Now, the deal was, is that I wasn't passionate about football. Right. And I didn't have a passion for it. But I live in Texas. Okay. So you live in Texas. Texas football is religion. And you a big corn-fed boy, you, you're going to play you some football, all right? That's just what's going to happen, all right? Now, it was a disappointment because I wasn't good. That's the main thing I took away from football in high school. I was like, man, this was disappointing. Um, but there was one bright spot I remember, right? It was in an off-season during my freshman year, and we went to a powerlifting meet. And it was the last squat uh, lift that I had. And so I was like, throw all the weight on, you know? And um, so they put 405 on the bar. And that was a pretty good amount for a 14-year-old. So I get under the bar, still a little, just reaching for some value in that number. Um, they put 405, and I go down, right? I get it back up. I, I get the, the weight back up, and I'm super pumped, right? I'm yelling and all that stuff. Well, they raise their hand, and they're like, we can't count the lift. You moved your foot while you're coming up, and I am hit with this disappointment, right? Like right away. But the thing is, Coach Brock comes over right away, and he's like, God, dog, boy, I'll tell you, that was a real good lift, man. You got that. Next time, you're going to get it. Real classic, like Texas high school football coach. Um, and, and, I'm, and I'm filled with this encouragement again, right? 
The only issue with that is that when the next fall came back around, I was still really bad at football. <laughs> so I had this bright moment, but it was backdoored right away with this sense of like failure again that I wasn't good at football. And so as time passed by and I got further and further away from that one time I did something good, I did what any self-respecting man would do. I brought up that one time I did something great, right? So I just started being like, hey, um, you know, you guys remember that time I squatted 405? Well, a little bit more time passes between me and that event and, you know, no one remembers it. And so you start losing a little bit of the value you connected to that that event, that action. And so I did what any self-respecting man would do. I embellished. I said, y'all remember that time I lifted 455 pounds? You know, then a few more months go by. You remember that time I lifted 500 pounds? Uh, And then a few years go by. You're out of high school. You've gained some weight. You're not as in shape as you were. And you're like, you remember that time I lifted like 1,000 pounds? You know, because what actually happens is we begin to to have these environments that, that put this expectation on us, right? And then we go and shoot for that expectation. And we try to develop some value from how we're doing contrasted against that expectation. Well, this is exactly what was happening to the Colossian church at this time. Let me, uh, let's go ahead and dive into our text. We're going to be in Colossians 2. We're going to read uh, verse 16 through 23. If you guys have a Bible, um, thank you for being a part of the OG click. Um, if you would open that and share that, go ahead and stay there, though, because we're going we're gonna to camp out in this part of the Bible today. We're really not going to move around, and I just want to stay and camp out here. So, verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are all ceremonial forms of worship. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not taste, or do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. All right, so first thing we pick up on here is that there is an environment, Colossae, the city, that's putting an expectation on this church. Now, the deal is, is uh, what a lot of us pick up right after that is Paul's like, don't judge, don't let them judge you. Right. And all of us like kind of clamor to that statement right away. Like, don't let them disqualify. Don't let them judge you. Because this pervasive thought in our culture today is one where everybody is like, you can't judge me. Right. It's like this this Tupac snowball. Right. Of like, (laughs) only God can judge me. And like, that should scare you. You know, like, I don't I, I don't. It's one of the most unbelievable things to me is when like I see someone like really honestly believe like only God can judge me. And they say it with like some measure of confidence. Like, that is beyond me. Leviticus says that how fearful it is to fall into the hands of a living, holy God. So there's this this element in our culture that's saying, okay, no, no one can judge me. And it's unfair if you judge me. Nothing can really say anything about how I live my life. But that directly contradicts everything that the Bible says. In fact, the Bible says that as we 
proceed in living our lives, we're already living under the judgment of God. Because our lives have actively worked against him and how he designed the world in this beautiful way to be filled with truth and love and care. And we actively fill it with lies, with brokenness, with hurt. So all of a sudden, we're living in God's judgment already, yet no one can judge us. You see, then if that's our position, how... How is Paul now saying, well, don't let anybody judge you? How? How do we get from A to B? That's where the first word in 16 really comes into play. The first word in 16, if you look down at your Bible, is therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Therefore. Therefore means that something had to happen in order to pick up this person and put them into a new environment where now no one can judge the Colossians. But something had to happen first. It wasn't an inherent right that no one could judge them. Something had to happen in order for them to get there. And this is where the rest of Paul's argument from chapter 1 and 2 really builds up to kind of climax in this moment. I don't want to kind of take a, you know, go backwards a little bit. I want to visit uh, Colossians chapter 1 to take a look at how Paul starts this argument. You see, the argument starts... Uh, actually, I preached the sermon. I apparently did a bad job because I was like, I got to revisit this and explain what it was really about. Um, Christ. He starts with Christ in chapter 1, uh, verse 15. In, in, in verse 19, he says, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You see, in, in that same chapter, he says, God, Jesus created everything. From the very beginning, before anything was created, he created it. And he stands at the end and upholds it in the middle. He's God Almighty, God All-Powerful. Why is that important? Because if Jesus is God over everything, then his gospel work at the cross impacts everything. You see, if Jesus was only a little bit of God here, then maybe his work on the cross only impacts a little bit of my life. If Jesus is only a little bit of God here, then maybe the cross only impacts a little bit of creation but leaves out other things. But if Jesus is God over everything, then what he's done on the cross impacts everything. Now, from here, we tend to move forward. Paul moves forward in his argument in chapter 2 and says, well, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you and me? What means in him, my life is completely different. In him, everything has changed. And that's why in the beginning of chapter 2, Paul begins this stretch of in hymns uh, that we talked a little bit about last week. He says, in him I've been filled. You see, all those parts that I thought were empty and broken and lost. No, 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 no. In him, they're all new. In him, I'm made new. In him, I'm filled. I'm complete. It says, in him, I've been circumcised with a circumcision without hands. Now, what that, don't freak out. What that means is actually in the Old Testament, God's people, he marked them with the uh, sign of circumcision. Now, we don't may or may not have a physical one, but the thing is, God says there's a spiritual mark on you now that gives a sign that you're a part of my people, that you are in relationship with me. In him, in verse 12, uh, in him, I've been buried in baptism with him. The old self has been put to death. Later on in verse 12, I've, I've risen in faith with him. I've been made new. You see, everything becomes different in him. It's all different. 
Paul knew this. Paul knew this. And so when he saw someone kind of bringing this, this thought of anything needing, you know, anyone needing something more than Jesus, he was like, what? He understood that all this was made possible through the work of Jesus on the cross. Okay, now that work of Jesus on the cross, uh, that was all him. It wasn't me. You get that? It didn't have anything to do with me. A lot of times what we end up doing is we think to ourselves, okay, um, God's goodness must somehow be connected with what I do. And thus, if I do something bad, God's goodness isn't here. If I do something good, then I've earned God's goodness. Completely against everything the Bible says. Deuteronomy 9, when God's talking to the Israelites in the wilderness, he says, it's not because of your righteousness that I'm bringing you into the promised land and blessing you. It's not because of you. It's actually because of their unrighteousness and my goodness. That's the actual reason. In Ephesians 2, he says that salvation, uh, Paul says the salvation is a gift from God by grace that no man should boast in it. So we're put in this position now where Paul sees these, these individuals as saying they needed something more, and he's kind of filled with this rage, and he, he, he kind of like rages against this thought, right? He rages against this thought like, man, someone is in your environment telling you that there's some kind of expectation on you that involves you needing something more than Jesus, and I'm going to rage against that. He begins to build an argument against three specific things. We're going to talk about two of them today, uh, just for time's sake, in all honesty. But the, the two that I want to bring to you, the, the two arguments that Paul begins to, to bring out are two that really revolve around us. The first one he brings up is an argument against religious obedience. Okay, he, the first one he brings up is an argument against religious obedience. And the second one is, against, is an argument against something called asceticism. These are two practices that largely involve us looking toward us. Now let's tackle these one by one, right? We're going to tackle them, then we're kind of just going to conclude out of that, out of those two thoughts. So we're not going to be too, too much longer. Um, religious obedience, right? A big question uh, during the time of the church in Colossae was this. Does one have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian? You see, the Christian faith had been brought out of the Jewish faith. And so there was this question of, well, do we have to become Jewish in order to become Christians? And this was a big deal because the Jewish faith actually had a lot of rigorous rules attached to it. And so it became this, this, this question of like, well, if we do have to become Jewish, do we have to do all these things that Jewish people do, right? Do we, the Jewish faith commands all these things. Do we have to do that as well? Well, Paul gives an emphatic no, um, but there was something going on in the church there that was pushing them to say that they did have to. That's where that, that first chunk of text comes from, right? There's like, like new moon, Sabbath, all these type of religious rules. And the reason that was kind of important is because God had given that law. That was a good thing. It wasn't a bad thing. God had given that law as a framework to point everyone to loving him and to loving others. That's the whole point of God giving like the 10 commandments, that whole thing. That's why when they asked Jesus in the gospels, like, what's the greatest commandment? He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul. The second one is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. That's, what, that's, that's the whole law and two commandments is what he said. So the point of it all was to show and move us toward God's love to, for him and God's love for others. Now, what ends up happening is Jewish leaders begin to pervert and distort this thought. And instead of using it as a framework to push them toward God's love, they use it as a framework uh, to display their own ability in keeping that law. 
So all of a sudden, the focus comes off of God, and the focus comes on to me. The focus comes off of God and onto these Jewish leaders saying, no, I keep every single one of those commandments. You fell short of two. I kept all of them. You fell short of five. I only fell short of two. You fell short of 10. I only fell short of eight. Like there's this, this give and take comparison game, right, that, that builds these people's concept of being saying, now I have earned God's love in some way because I have done this many things. Because I've done X, Y, and Z, I am more fit to be loved by God than you are. And if we're being honest, there's a few of us in here that have kind of done that same thing, right? Like there's a couple of us in here that are like, dude, I have Christianity down. <laughs> like, dude, I have mastered this thing called Christianity, right? Like I go to church, I go to like small groups, like I read my Bible, I've been baptized, I even pray for my food, <laughs> right? Okay. All the while... We miss the mark of what all of it's for. The point of all of it, Christ, to love Jesus, to adore Jesus, to see Jesus for who he really is. Our master, the lover of our souls, the the treasure of our hearts. And from knowing him and loving him and being loved by him, loving other people better. Now, the, the, the opposite of that is that there's a, a, a sword there that cuts two ways because there's another group in here that really feels like you haven't done enough. You've been under this expectation of these like, religious rules, and now all of a sudden you're in the place where you're like, man, I don't think I've done enough to earn a love from God. You, you, you've generalized that to like your whole life, right? You've generalized that to like you don't think you could earn the affection of a dog, like much less a human or a holy God. And so there's this, this thought of like, because I failed, God's incapable. Because I failed, God can't do something. What does that say about where we place our trust? What does that say about who we believe is really all powerful in that scenario? I want to I tell you something. The same way I could not literally just walk outside and be like, stop raining. I can't tell God to do or not to do anything. Romans says, who has given God wise counsel? Who has told him what to do? And God look at that man and be like, thank you so much. (laughs) In that same way, my brother, my sister, beloved, there is absolutely nothing you could do to stop God. If he decides to love you, you shall be loved. It doesn't depend on you. It depends on him and his goodness. But the issue becomes, where do we set our trust? Where do we set our faith? Because both sides of this sword are are riddled with the same affliction. It's that we've taken our eyes and faith and trust off of God and put it on us. Everything depends on what I've done or what I haven't done, what I failed to do. In reality, in our own lives, we take the throne away from God and we sit ourselves on it. To say, I look to me for my help. I look to me for my trust. I look to me for my hope. We've hoped in ourselves. We've relied in ourselves. In short, we have worshipped ourselves. We've worshipped what we can do or what we can't do. We've made it more powerful than we believe God is in our lives. Now, 
the culmination of this, like what it leads to is the same thing as, as argument two. So I'm going to go ahead and wait for that and we'll put it all together. Argument two goes on to discuss um, the second uh, is asceticism. Okay, I'm not even going to lie to you. When I was reading asceticism, I had to go to the dictionary. All right, I read asceticism and I was like, Merriam-Webster, because I didn't know what it meant. Um, well, asceticism is actually just a self-deprivation to achieve some kind of spiritual, you know, attainment, achievement, you know. So, you know, it's like me kind of cutting something off in order to build the self-discipline to stop doing it to show that I'm like spiritually, like, you know, elite, right? This kind of happened during, or it happens now across a lot of religions, actually, like monks, right? They go, they put themselves in like four walls, like up in the mountains. They don't eat, they don't sleep. They take vows of silence. If you eat too much, the cure to that is depriving yourself of food so that you can build the self-discipline to not eat, and then you can go back to enjoying food. If you talk without thinking, then you take a vow of silence to deprive yourself of speaking so that you can learn to value your words, you know, that kind of thing. Now, here's a question a lot of, uh, a question that I got kind of kickback on was like, well, is, um, isn't that kind of like fasting? Right? When we fast, isn't that kind of the same thing where we don't eat in order for like something to happen? Um, well, no. Uh, in short, fasting is when we give something up, we, we lose something, and we invite God to fill that space. A, face for, a, a, a space for all intents and purposes he already has. That he already has laid claim to. We're just fighting to surrender it more and more and more. And allowing and asking for his will to be done in my life. That's different than saying, okay, in my own strength and of my own power, I'm going to force myself to grow the responsibility and discipline to stop doing X, Y, and Z. That's a completely different thing. One of them begs God to have his way. The other one says, I can make my own way. If your fasting doesn't look like you inviting God in, then, then uh, you, you might be practicing asceticism. Right? I'm not going to throw around, not, no, hear your signs or anything, but I'm not going to, it's potentially, that's real. You, you might actually be practicing asceticism. The goal of asceticism is self-reliance, is self-sufficiency. And that becomes the issue. Again, another camp that puts themselves in a place of God, deciding that they can, we can, make a way in and of ourselves without him. But if I was being honest, like, how is that going for us? Right? Like, how is that really going for us? I don't mean, like, yelling at your wife. I mean, like, how is it going with the anger that fuels yelling at your wife? <coughs> right? And I'm not talking about, like, you know fighting the urge to like commit adultery. I'm saying like, what about the lust that undergirds committing adultery? You see, because there's something that fuels those things. It's like a cobweb and a spider. I can walk around the sanctuary all day and be like, cobweb, 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 cobweb. I don't know how that happens. And never think to myself, man, there's a spider here that I need to get. And the issue becomes... The issue becomes, man, where am, 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 is my identity found, right? Because I think the main reason we try so hard is because in reality, there's a lot of you out here right now that are thinking to yourselves like, well, that doesn't matter because it's not what I feel. It's what I do with my feelings, right? You can say yes, I know. <laughs> uh, so a lot of you out there right now are like, no, I, it's, 
I may feel this way, but I don't, if I don't act on it, then it's not wrong. Let me tell you something. Let me, let me, uh, let me explain something to you. Paul attacks these because he fundamentally disagrees with you based on the teachings of Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5 and 6, Jesus says, well, no, 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 you said that if a man murders his brother, he's liable to judgment. I say that if a man has been angry in his heart toward his brother, he's liable to judgment. Why? Because that anger is what undergirds that action. You say, I've not committed adultery. I say, the one who looks at someone with lust has committed adultery in his heart already. Because that feeling, that sensation is what undergirds that action. We're not talking about the the actions per se that develop our identity. 1 Samuel 16 says that God, he looks deeper than just an outside appearance. You see, I can really, in effect, I can put a mask on and make all of you believe I'm X, Y, and Z for years. Go watch the movie, Catch Me If You Can, Leo's first real Academy Award, all right? So um, it's amazing. He goes on for years and years and years making a bunch of people believe he's someone that he's not. And we do the same thing. We, we, We do it, we have an action, We have a plan of action. I'm going to stop doing this. I'm going to do this so that we can make people believe internally we're someone that we're not. And Jesus begins to break down this argument to lay us bare. And that's the greatest obstacle when we are confronted with the gospel. The greatest obstacle is not that everything you've done has been bad. It's that everything you've done has been tainted by sin. Nothing you've done has not had a little, little tint of sin just right along with it. There was never a time that I walked an old lady across the street without at least some little ambition to be like, man, I feel good about that. I ain't going to tell nobody, but I feel really good about that. There's something there that fuels a self-promotion more than it fuels a glory to God that takes eyes off of God and puts them on me. And that becomes the hardest part because our identity is so wrapped up in these actions. And when they start getting pulled from us, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount starts laying them bare, when Paul starts laying them bare, then all of a sudden we have to go home and we have to look in the mirror at someone that we really don't like, someone that we wish we really didn't have to see. So then we start grasping for solutions. And this is where things like religious obedience come from. This is where things like asceticism come from. It doesn't have to be religious. You could be in here and not know who Jesus was from me, all right? But you do it too. There's a ton of atheists that look in the mirror and really don't like who they are, so they go and feed homeless people in order to feel better that day. There's, there's individuals that have no clue who Jesus is, who read all the marriage books they can because they're hoping really bad that they can change the husband or wife that they are because they don't like who they see in the mirror that day. That has nothing to do with religion. That has everything to do with who God declares I'm supposed to be and who I have become with or without him. I've fallen into that place. And now I'm left bare before with this this person that I don't like. So then I start grabbing for these solutions and each one of them becomes tiring. It lets down. 
It doesn't deliver on the promise that it said it would. And that's why in the last verse of our text, Paul says, they have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promising self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. You see, they look good. They look prominent. They look promising. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You see, they don't, they don't deliver on what they promise. When I'm tired of trying to not be who I see in the mirror, when I'm tired of meeting moments of failure, when I'm tired of meeting moments where I have let myself down and those around me, when I grasp at this to try to promise that, that promises that things will be different tomorrow, it, it, it doesn't deliver on that promise. We're still left with a spider crawling around the room somewhere because it does nothing to tackle that issue. So what do we do? Because there's some of you guys in here that are, that are like tired Right? You're tired. Like you walk every single day in the shoes of someone that you kind of don't like a little bit. But there's some parts of you that you do like, some parts of you that you don't like, and there's this part of you that's like, man, I, I'm tired of being, I'm tired of putting on a mask for everyone to see. I'm just tired. There's a song we sang earlier that says, are you hurting and broken within? overwhelmed by the weight of your sin. See, that's the culmination. That's the culmination. In the Bible, it says that, right there in Colossians, where we were reading that every single person who begins to adopt this thought of doing for themselves something lets go of the head and now relies on self. The issue with that is what we're really striving for is found in the substance of Christ. It's found in him. It would be impossible for me to achieve something that I don't inherently have. It's like, you know, it's like me saying, well, I want to climb the Himalaya mountains, but I want to do it in Texas. Right? You're not going to do that. Why? Because that's, that's alien. The Himalayas aren't in Texas. You got like a mountain, like a quarter of that size, maybe less. But yet you want to force something that's never going to happen. So what is our solution? Our solution is Christ. Paul delivers this letter entirely for us to understand that the gospel completely makes us new. It takes the burden off of you to do something you can't do and alleviate the pressures, alleviate the hurts that you have caused yourself. Because if we're being honest, if I, let me just be honest with you, I am my own worst enemy. There's not a soul in this room who has hurt Josh more than Josh has hurt Josh. There's not a soul in this room who has lied to Josh more than Josh has lied to Josh. Yet for years and years and years, what I did was try to go back to my worst enemy and say, help me. Enemy, help me now. 
And the fact was that enemy never did anything besides stab me in my back over and over and over again. That was his nature. That was the sin nature inside of me. It couldn't help but do anything else. So Jesus in the gospel comes to us instead of us going to him. Incapable of climbing that mountain, he comes to us. He lives the life that we should have lived. He dies the death we should have died. And in turn opens the door to be in relationship with Jesus, with God again. To be in him. To be made new in him to be filled in him, to be raised in him, to put to death the old man in him. Uh, today, there's a few of you in here that are probably a little bit tired. Like, even as I've talked, like you've, you've kind of like been processing what I'm saying. And I know I talk fast, but you've been processing fast. And uh, you thought to yourself, like, man, I'm, I'm pretty tired. Like, Realistically, I get up every day and I put on a mask. Realistically, I do things. But deep down inside, I still wrestle with the fact that I am who I am. And I can't change that. And just like the song earlier, man, like, come to the altar. Lay that down at Jesus' feet. This is kind of going to everybody from Christian to non-Christian right now because all of us fight this. I fight it all the time. So today, if you're tired, I want to pray for you. And I want to pray that your heart would be made new in faith in Christ. That you would place your hope in the only thing hope is worth being placed in. That you would place your trust in the only thing trust is worth being placed in. If you bow your head with me. Father, we love you. God, when we were lost, we actively even worked against you in moments. In every moment, you, God, gave yourself for us on the cross. so that we could be recovered back to your flock, back to your people. We could be in relationship with you, and every empty, broken place, God, would be restored back to the promise of knowing and loving you, enjoying you forever, being in union with you, God, being satisfied by you, the ultimate beauty in the world. So many of us in this place, God, have either run or never had the chance to know that beauty. We've run and we've tried to define ourselves and who we are. We've tried to make ourselves something that we're not in efforts over and over and over again in the cycle of frustration that has left many of the people in this room tired. Father, move on our hearts today. Surrender to you. To surrender to your grace that we can't afford or purchase, but that we receive freely from you out of your goodness, out of your love. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, uh, Pastor Peter's going to come up and give us a couple of closing announcements.
Um, if today the first part of your surrender to God was with your life for the first time, um, there's a table, a connection table in the back right outside. Please fill that out. I don't care if you've been coming here for like a year or you filled out like 50 of those things. Fill it out again. And write down on there somewhere, like, I, I met Jesus today. I placed my faith in Christ today. We want to walk that out with you as a spiritual family together.